So everyone has a reason or multiple reasons behind why they do what they do. Sometimes certain decisions might seem aimless or someone may lack motivation, but there is still a reason or a goal or a motivation. You have a reason for going to work every day. Maybe that reason is this like sense of duty, like I, I, I need to do this, or there's a clear connection that this is how God provides for me and he provides for my family. Or even simply because this is habit, this is what I do, that's why I'm doing what I do is because I always do it. So you have a reason for everything that you do. You have a reason for who you talk to or don't talk to in the course of a day. You have a reason for living exactly where you live. You have reasons for how you spend your, your downtime, what areas of politics you engage in, what opinions you have about other people. In fact, you had a reason to get in your car this morning and drive to 1541 South Smithville Road to be a part of this gathering. We may not always be able to pinpoint that reason. There might be a couple of other factors that are out of our control and we might not be the most consistent people in the world so those reasons might change. But nonetheless, generally, there's this purpose, this guiding purpose behind why we're doing what we're doing. And this morning, we wanna take hold of why we as a church are here and not leave it up to question and not leaving why we're doing what we're doing up to question either. In fact, what is the reason for Sovereign Grace Church Dayton? Could you answer that question? What's, what's the reason? Why does Sovereign Grace Church Dayton not just exist as an organization, but a, a church family, a body of believers? Beyond that, what is the reason that you are a part of Sovereign Grace Church Dayton? Could you answer that question? Maybe one person would say, I enjoy the people here. That's why I'm here. I think it's a good place to learn from the Bible. Maybe someone else would say, I'm here to see people come to know Christ. That's why I'm here. Those are all wonderful reasons. And my hope, though, is that as we're a part of this body of Christ, that we would all be motivated in the same direction, that, that we would be able to say, this is why all of us are here. This is collectively what we're about, why we do what we do. If you're going to have a reason or purpose for why we're here and what we do what we do, we need to know why celebration gatherings on Sundays, why community groups and prayer ministry, youth ministry, all that's involved in our life together as a church, we want to be sure that, that, that we have the best reason for those things. We want to be sure that it's a reason that we share together. And we don't want to leave anyone up to question like, I'm not sure why this is a part of what we do. In a season where there's lots of new going on in our church right now, there's a lot that hasn't changed ultimately, which is why we thought it'd be a good idea to spend the next two weeks evaluating our mission statement, which actually has been in place for seven years or so now. Our church's mission statement is not this inspired sentence. It's not our sacred cow or like this highly marketable slogan or anything like that. In fact, Steve would, Steve would tell you it's, it's not even ours because it's a mixture of lots of great biblical summary statements made by other people way more concise than we are. So that said, 
it's necessary for us as a church to not just say, okay, by the way, this is our mission statement. This is what we decided to put on the wall in the, in the foyer just because we like it. Rather, it's good for us right now to go through this process of trying to encapsulate what God has made this church body for and even what he's made you personally for. We want to be able to own our mission together, to claim it, to live it, to strive for it together, to be of one mind and one accord, as Paul would say, to, to not leave us just kind of aimless or wondering what to do next, to have a really good reason behind what we're doing here. And here is what we think is our really good reason. We exist to glorify God by maturing and multiplying disciples who enjoy, declare, and display the good news of Jesus Christ for the joy of all peoples. Now we could wind up, like, if we're gonna spend two weeks on the mission statement, one way to go about that is for me to stand up here and repeat that as many times as possible to get it in our, in our minds. It could be this mantra, this slogan that we just say over and over again and nobody knows what it means. It would mean nothing for us to do that. So if you haven't considered it before, that's what these two weeks are for. If you haven't uh, thought about, could this be mine? Could this be ours? Not just as something plastered on the wall, but as there's been, been a lot of good thought put into it. We think it represents scripture well. And I want, I want that to be the reason why I do what I do. I want, it, I want it to make an impact in my home, in my marriage, in my friendships. And I'm not saying that everyone has to agree that this is it. This is the best summary and the clearest and most, ca most catchy statement you'll find. But could it be that we move forward together with a sense of unity by solidifying our reason why we're here. We exist, we Sovereign Grace Church, exist to glorify God by maturing and multiplying disciples who, this is what they're like, they enjoy, declare, and display the good news of Jesus Christ for the joy of all peoples. So I'm gonna read a part of 2 Corinthians 5, which has Hopefully we'll see some similarities to our statement. There's lots of scripture that we could go to because our statement is kind of pieces. But 2 Corinthians 5 is a helpful tool for us to, to see that scripture is our guide. We, we don't want to be saying something that scripture is not saying or find ourselves setting out on this mission that scripture hasn't clearly outlined for us because God is the one who gets to determine that. We don't get to innovate, we don't get to create new stuff when it comes to the mission that we're setting out on as a church and that we continue and have continued for the last 10 years doing. But here's, here's Paul explaining what he's about and what the church in Corinth should also be about. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. That's the re that's that's the pushing reason. The love that Christ has shown to me, we were just saying he died, he died for me. That is what controls me. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that, this is why he died, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's what we're here for. We are here for his sake. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we don't treat people just as they appear to us. We treat people differently. We say, we say this is a, a body of believers. We, we have trusted in Christ together. We treat that group of people very uniquely. And we also see other people, no matter how they look, and say, that person doesn't know Jesus. That's the most important thing that I know about them. So we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though once we regarded Christ according to the flesh because he walked among us, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, been completely remade. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And who's this from? All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And he didn't just stop there. He didn't just save us and leave it at that. It says, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And then in his wisdom, entrusting that, entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, the way that his message of reconciliation gets out is through us. We are ambassadors for Christ. And, And as we're taking that message out, God is making his appeal to people through us, which is just a miracle of his power, first of all, because we can't do that on our own. We don't possess the skill or the the strength or the courage to do any of that. And yet, he's saying, here's my mission. I'm about reconciling the world. I'm going to use you to do it. I could do it all on my own and kind of just like automatically, but I'm going to work through you. So Paul says, "We we implore you on behalf of Christ, which is, this is what we're doing with people who don't know Christ. Be reconciled to God, please. I've seen, I've seen the truth. I've seen what Jesus has done for me. Would you be reconciled to God? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So hopefully we can see some parallels and that we're wanting our mission statement to conform to the mission that God has sent us on. We are ambassadors, representatives of Jesus Christ and God is forming a people for himself through us, joining him on that mission. He's saying, this is what I'm setting out to do. I want you to come and join me on it. He uses uses such weak people as his messengers to call others to be reconciled to God that they too might become a new creation. He's the one who gave us that ministry. And it's an incredible task we have. And if if, if ever we're wondering where the motivation comes from, we look to the beginning of that passage for the love of Christ compels us. That for Paul didn't run out necessarily. It sustained him his whole life long and ministry long is the love of Christ compels me. It keeps compelling me and keeps compelling me and keeps compelling me. It's not grown old to me. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. So we think that having a mission statement in general and then knowing what it means will be a tool to help us 
simply do just that. So we'll break it down and spend this week on half of our statement and next week on the other half. The first few words of our mission statement tell us the most important part of why we're here, along with why we do what we do as a body. Point number one, we exist to glorify God. Now you can think about that as, as a church, but just for a second, say that of yourself. I exist. The reason why I exist is to glorify God. Like a blender exists to blend. It's got one purpose, one reason. And we have one reason for being created in the first place, which is to glorify God and be these living arrows pointed to the splendor and worth and might of God. That's why you were born on such and such a date. That's why you took your first breath and that you just took another breath. Because God made you to draw attention to and make a big deal about him. God set out to make you to glorify himself. God made us as humans specialized at bringing him glory. The grass and the thunderclaps and Jupiter and the smell of coffee and all those other things were made to glorify God. But we are the only things in all creation that resemble him and are walking representations of him. When God made Adam and Eve, scripture said, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, both in the image of God, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Here's, here's your marching orders. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God's saying, go fill the earth with representatives of me until the whole earth is full of these arrows that are directing everyone's attention to the glory and worth and beauty of God his goodness, his love, his power, his splendor. So from the start, God gave Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity a mission, and it centered upon spreading that glory and that fame which he intended to happen through physical descendants. Be fruitful, multiply. This is how you get the mission done. Spread these people all over the face of this globe. Now how that mission is achieved has changed a bit since Adam and Eve, but the purpose remains the same. We are here to give glory to God. Our lives are meant to talk a big talk about him and no one or nothing else. If this church pursued anything else, any other goal like etching our name into Dayton's history or having this great ministry to this group of people the best of all time, we'll have completely lost our way. We exist to give praise to the Creator and the Redeemer together. However, instead of just filling the earth with physical children, we are called to glorify God in a bit of a different way. It might still include and involve physical children, but here's how Jesus redefined the mission of God in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He says that the, the new method of glorifying God, Adam and Eve, go fill the earth, fill it with people. 
The new method of glorifying God was to fill the earth with God's glory through spiritual descendants who know and love God and continue to carry out that same mission. That's why just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, he gets to set the terms on how this mission of glorifying God gets fulfilled. All authority through him dying and rising from the dead had been given to Jesus. He gets to set the terms. Here are the terms. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, i.e., fill the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In short, we think Jesus is calling us to fulfill our purpose in glorifying God by maturing and multiplying disciples. So what we're here for is to glorify God. Okay, where do we start? By maturing and multiplying disciples. And you know what? He doesn't call us to do that without a promise. As you set out to do this, Sovereign Grace Church Dayton, I am with you always. To the end of the age, I am with you. As you're working at this, as you're prioritizing, making disciples, I'll be right there beside you. As you baptize people, as you teach them, as you baptize those who baptize and teach other disciples, I am with you. Kids, this picture will come and go, so it's about to leave, but you'll have time to draw it again at some point. Just watch closely, see if it pops up again. You may have noticed that our logo had changed and we purposely didn't wanna make a humongous deal as if we're like rebranding or something or trying to make our church just like attractive and marketable or something like that. Although we do wanna have purpose in why we're using this little image as just another reminder of why we're here and why we do what we do. Our old logo featured this central cross and leaves that are around it to represent growth, maturity, Christ at the center. But we were kind of missing this multiplying piece. So the new logo we started using, and she probably won't me, want me to say this, but give a hand to Amanda Fowler. She's not in here. Amanda, Amanda's out there. Thanks, Amanda, for, for doing such an excellent job putting this together. Um, the new logo keeps that same central cross. We, we would not be here if it weren't for Christ. Um, but then it also has leaves or flower petals, however you want to look at them, representing maturing. So keeping that, we are growing in maturity. But then there's also in the background, you might see like a faint X. Um, that, that's what we're setting out to do, which is to multiply disciples also. Um, per the instructions of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, we, we want to mature and multiply disciples. This is just another way that we can help remember why we're here. We have the mission statement written on our wall. The mission statement is embedded in our logo. Maybe it sort of will, over time, the Lord will use that to carve that into our hearts over years and years and years. But looking back at the statement in itself, we glorify God by maturing and multiplying disciples. If 
go therefore and make, make disciples carries this idea of like, okay, make, make more of them, multiply. Paul often talks about his role in making disciples in maturing terms. In, first, or in Colossians 1, he says, him, that's Jesus, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. We, we are constantly proclaiming Christ and, and helping people understand who, who he is, what he's done, so that people are presented mature in Christ, like a plant that's nurtured to full maturity. In another place, he says, and Jesus, the risen Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for, the, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we might no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, what happens? The body grows so that it builds itself up in love. For those who have been in a church long enough, you might know that the terms which may have started out as clear and meaningful to you have over time just become dull and basically as clear as mud. That's why about a year ago, a dozen or so folks from our church, along with the pastors and their wives, set out to try to define our terms here. For example, do we know what Jesus is talking about when he's instructing us to make disciples? Do we immediately know, oh, that's what that means. I need to go start, start this direction. Probably questions that you've wondered about too. What does Jesus mean? So that group of folks has gone through what, what's called the Vine Project, which is it's just, a, it's just meant to have multiple sets of eyes to make sure that what we believe the kind of things that we say and the way that we do things in our church all line up together. So we sought to answer a few important questions that I think, so we've said, we exist to glorify God, great. This is how we do it, by maturing and multiplying disciples, but it might still be unclear as to how we go about this. So we wanted to answer a couple of questions that will help us as a church understand what it means to make disciples so that we can actually go about doing it rather than starting into making disciples without some sort of like roadmap. So the first question, why make disciples? I loved what we were saying earlier of being thrown upon the praises of a thousand generations because the first reason why we make disciples is because Jesus is worthy of a reward, which is thousands and thousands of people over thousands of generations singing his praise and saying, you are worthy for the love that you have shown us, for your mercy towards us, for the fact that you have made us, we are yours. We could have lots of reasons for making disciples, but one of the most important ones is that God is worthy of a people that knows him and that belongs to him and that is 
committed to and, and will be worshiping him for eternity. But another reason is because the stakes for making disciples could not be higher. They could not be more urgent. One depiction that I've, I found personally very impactful is a startling picture painted by an author named William Booth in his book, A Vision of the Lost. This is what he says. I saw a very dark and stormy ocean. Over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them, every now and then, vivid winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam and tower and break again. In that ocean, I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean, a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above those black clouds that over, overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform, I saw with delight a number of poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those were already safe on the platform. They were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued. They were industriously working and scheming by ladders and ropes and boats and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water regardless of the consequences in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me most, the sight of the poor drowning people climbing to safety or the devotion and the self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. As I looked on, I saw that the occupants of the platform were a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments but only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone had seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger just no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. So this picture is stark, but I think it carries with it the weight that Scripture talks about, the fact that there's judgment and death ahead of everyone who does not trust in Christ. Like people drowning in this vast ocean, nothing to cling to, though, though they choose it. And here we are on this platform, so made for us by Christ, we can find safety 
and, and we can look back and say, I was, I was in there. And now I can be at this place of, of, of peace. Now what? Are we those who turn the blind eye? Are we those who, who are trying to figure out how do, we, how do we get to those people? They're so far down. Maybe ropes, maybe ladders. This guy has a boat. Or maybe it's just headlong. Regardless, the stakes for making disciples could not be higher for us. We make disciples because the Savior who is worthy of all people worshiping him has commanded us to do so. And because people will face eternal judgment if we don't, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, if, if Sovereign Grace was the only church in Dayton and Jesus has said, go make disciples of all nations, um, who, who does that fall on? Yes, it's his mission, but again, he's choosing to do the work of reconciling through us. So if disciples aren't being made, could it be that we are turning that blind eye, that we are not dedicating ourselves to this work that Jesus, the savior of our souls, has called us to? So if we're convinced of those two things, that Jesus is worthy of this, and there are people who need us, and who need him, most importantly, then the love of Christ will go on compelling us to do this very important work and give ourselves totally to it. Now, that can happen in the current setting that you're in, in the, in the family setting, in the work setting, school setting. We can, we can start right now. We don't have to take ourselves out of there and go into full-time ministry or anything like that. This, this is a task given for all of us and giving ourselves totally to it is going guaranteed, it's guaranteed to look different for each of us. Another question, what is a disciple? A disciple is not just an apprentice or a student. A disciple of Jesus is a forgiven sinner who is learning Christ in repentance and faith. And out of that, lovingly helps others learn Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we say learn Christ, what we mean is that we're not setting out to just learn the content of our Bibles. We're meant to be gripped by one thing, and that is the glory of our Savior. In this process of following Jesus, we are meant to be zealous and obsessed with knowing a person, not just a book. We're not trying to learn some handbook on how to be a good person or how to be a better Christian. Our goal is Christ. We're not here to simply wish each other well through difficulties. We're not here to watch one another be destroyed over unrepentance and sinful patterns. We're not here to settle with the status quo of our own pursuit of Christ. We are those who strive forward together, reaching for the goal and the prize, which is none other than Christ himself. There is surpassing worth in knowing him, and we want to learn who he is, what he's like, what he's calling us to, so we can better glorify him, which, full circle, is why we exist. We are learning the person who has loved us and rescued us, along with learning his ways, embodying his character, exploring all that this word of God has to say about God, specifically looking for ways to help others learn Christ through God's word, 
being concerned with the ills of this world and the hurting people around us and giving ourselves opportunities to experience all that there is to know and experience of Christ here and now. That's what it means to be his disciple. Jesus says that our love for him spilling out and over and our love for one another will say one thing to everyone around us. It will say, that's a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're learners and followers of Jesus with our minds made up about how glorious, glorious he is and about what wondrous things he's done for us, particularly at the cross. So that's what a disciple is, but how are disciples made? How do we go and start making disciples? Here are some possible answers to that question. Disciples are made by sharing the gospel with them. Or disciples are made by people spending time alone with God, reading their Bibles, fellowshipping with the Father, praying. Or disciples are made by one-on-one -on -one mentoring at a coffee shop as an older Christian meets with a younger Christian to pass on wisdom and to have a Bible study. Well, none of the above and all of the above. There is not one way to make disciples, for example, a one-on-one -on -one mentor type relationship. That's not the only way that we go about making disciples, but it can be one of the many ways that we set out to help one another learn Christ. It's this process we are always learning Christ. We're helping others learn Christ at the same time, even if people are hearing about him for the first time. You are helping that person understand who it is that God sent to save them if they believe. But here are the non-negotiable negotiable pieces, though, about how disciples are made. Disciples must be made by us proclaiming God's word by praying for the Spirit's power to work in that person and reveal Christ to them more fully, and then persevering in both of those things, proclaiming and praying. If we're not bringing people to God's word, not necessarily to like the physical Bible, but if the word of God does not dwell in us richly and is not what we're proclaiming to people, then they're not being shown nor are they learning Christ as revealed to us in, in God's word. This is God's word about himself, and it includes the most important things for us to know and believe. So as we're proclaiming this in the form of conversations around the table when so-and-so tells you what's going on in their life right now, or when that person comes to mind and you text them a piece of a psalm, or when you're embodying this as you're taking care of an elderly parent, or you're telling your kids about how God has made everything that they see, or you're giving counsel to a friend who is making a tough decision, or when you're walking through family grief together, or you're praying in that prayer room across the hall, the list could go on. But as you're doing those things, you are, the word of God is your source, proclaiming it to the person across from you and praying that the spirit would work in them to further trust in Christ, to walk in, his, in obedience to his commands and then to have courage and boldness to proclaim to others. But we're not just doing that once, we're persevering in that with your kids, with new believers, with seasoned believers. You keep proclaiming and you keep spurring on, you keep praying for the spirit to work, not giving up on that person just because they're not changing, not calling it quits after a time or two and they're still downcast, not throwing in the towel when someone responds a way that you don't like, 
If those things are happening, we're giving attention to applying the word of God to each other's lives. We're praying that the spirit would change us as a result. And we're continuing in that over time, then we are doing the work of making disciples. People are learning Christ. By the power of the spirit, disciples are maturing and they're multiplying. Fourth question, who makes disciples? The short answer is the Holy Spirit does. We'll spend a bit bit more on that next week, but the Spirit is the one who is daily teaching us. Again, not book smarts about a topic. He's daily teaching a person, Jesus Christ, to us. So it's only through his work that we get to participate in making disciples. But again, humanly speaking, who makes disciples? Well, every single person who has trusted in Jesus Christ. If you're one of those in the room who just trusted in Christ within within the last couple months, you have the joy of helping other people learn Christ and know him, even as you're still growing to know and to love him. You're a part of that. Even if it starts with the people who don't know Christ at all, whether you're a working mom, a single guy, whether you consider yourself young and inexperienced or old and ready ready for the young ones to take your spot, whether you're considered yourself well-versed in the Bible or not, you have been brought onto God's mission of glorifying himself by maturing and multiplying disciples. If it's true that we're all meant to take part in helping each other learn Christ, then that means we should be looking at all sorts of opportunities to do so, and we should open ourselves up to other people in this church discipling us, helping us learn Christ because we know none of us have arrived. Each of us has been placed here by King Jesus to help one another in that process. At 26, it's become totally clear that when I'm around some of you that that have loved Christ longer than I've been alive, that I need to close my mouth, watch you, listen to you, see by your words and your life example that you're helping me learn Christ and how glorious he is. But that's not just true of the people older than you or the same gender or the same upbringing. That's the beauty of it is you have everything to gain from the various gifts of this body. And you are also a part of the maturing of the disciples in this church. If you're young or you consider yourself shy or you feel like so many other people have so much more to offer, Don't be so quick to count out the fact that the folks older than you need to see your life and know more of Christ through you also. That's one of the reasons why you're here. And that's why we are a church body. So the last question, speaking of a church body, where are disciples made? The church is a community of Christ learners, aka disciples, who are all being transformed together. In other words, God's church, his people, whether they're in this building or right down the street on Smithville at Trinity Church, or if we're all split up in our homes and at work during the week, that's the place where God dwells. And wherever God is among us, he is transforming us into the likeness of his son. He's using this multi-member, variously gifted body to learn Christ together. Not one piece is unnecessary. We don't have the choice to be able to say, I'm this and that piece of the body, that person doesn't contribute. Not one believer in this body should be excluded from this process. We are maturing in Christ together. We are learning Christ together. 
Can God use you all by yourself to help people learn Christ? Absolutely. Particularly, though, as an extension of this whole. That's our hope every week as we kind of disperse from this little gathering, that we are throwing ourselves into that sea and rescuing folks by the proclamation of the word and prayer over the long haul so that those disciples get brought into where? This body, where we are all growing, where we are all on that same maturing journey together. So I hope, I hope that answering those just five brief questions will help us clarify what we mean when we say things like maturing and multiplying disciples. We want to be and do the work of making disciples who are set on learning Christ and his ways and living as he has commanded us. Disciples who proclaim the word of God, who pray and depend on the spirit to save and change people. We do that over time as a commitment to one another. We go after those who are lost because we are convinced that Jesus deserves his reward and that the stakes could not be higher. All with the hope that as we focus on this whole body maturing, that disciples are added to the kingdom of God and brought into the same process, no matter what they look like, no matter what their past is like, no matter their skills or talents, no matter where on this globe they might find themselves. Circling back a bit, I just wanna leave you with a question. What is your mission as a Christian and as a member of this body? If you could put words to it. And then I'd ask you, could it not be this? Could we not claim this together as our own so that we could have our sights set on God's purpose for this church? We'll focus on the second half of this statement next week. Disciples who enjoy, declare, and display the good news of Jesus Christ for the joy of all peoples. In the meantime, kids, remember, save your note cards for next week. Ask your parents about them. Otherwise, I'll have some more for you next week just in case.